I am Steve Davis, and I'm one of the elders here at Genesis, and um, it's my privilege to be able to talk to you today. Uh, as, as we've announced this morning, we are talking about marriage, and uh, I, I am pretty aware of the fact that uh, we're wading into the deep end of the pool now, you know what I mean? I mean, this is, whew, what a topic. It's one of the most wonderful, one of the most maddening, great, sometimes horrible uh, relationships in life, and it is one that I know and I'm aware of that, that we are all in vastly different pr- places. There might be some here today who uh, are having a, a, a great marriage uh, this week, you know, and they're really, <laughs> really happy and, and joyful about where they are with their spouse. And there are others who, um, you know, yeah, they're married, but really would it'd be a lot easier right now if they just weren't. And um, so I, I know that we have the whole spectrum represented here today. So I think it's appropriate to set some ground rules as we begin to talk about a topic like marriage. And so, one, um, we're going to talk about the biblical ideal today. And so I ask that you will be okay with maybe dreaming with me, you know what I mean? Uh, Let yourselves dream about the ideal, about what this could be, how great it could be, and at the same time, um, recognize that, that we're talking about the biblical ideal, not like, not like what I know about marriage, but what the Bible says. But know that also in the pages of the Bible, I mean, they're just full of examples of ways in which we, you know, at least I, settle for less than God's best. So I'm going to talk about the ideal, but I know that I settle so many times for something short of what God had in mind. And so wherever you are, um, hang in there these four weeks. They're going to be exciting. We're not just going to, this isn't just for married people because we're going to talk about relationships and what God had in mind for that. So um, if you're single, if you're married, if you're divorced, if you want to be married again, whatever you got, um, I hope that you'll be able to find something in the next four weeks um, that, that applies to you. So before I pray, I think I'm supposed to introduce the four weeks that we have. So week one is today, and it's a once upon a time, hence the sort of dreaming aspect of a fairy tale, and then next time we're going to talk about sleeping with beauty, we're going to talk about sex, Um, and I think that's a very clever title, and that's going to be heavy, but but, um, you know, if you can't talk about sex in church, where can you talk about it, right? So week three, when dragons attack, we're going to talk about some biblical principles for conflict resolution, and finally, week four is going to be happily ever after, and we're going to bring some couples up to maybe talk about some of the things that they've been able to uh, weather or some, some things that have allowed them to, to at least stay married and, and seem like they're pretty happy right now. So that's where we're going today, once upon a time. Pray with me. Dearest Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, the start of a new week, uh, the chance to be in your word today, to learn about a subject that is uh, awesome and hard. So as we prepare for this, this, this series We just ask for your presence, that it would be especially felt and known to us as we go. And God, may my words be pleasing to to your ears. And uh, let's hope everybody gets something out of this. Amen. All right, so today we're talking about relationships and marriage even. And I was thinking, as as I was given this license to dream, as I've given you all, I was thinking, what, what images, what... Where could I find some images of a really, really good love or a really good relationship? And I thought to myself, um, love poetry. I've never really studied any love poetry, but I hear it's pretty good. 
And uh, maybe I would have been better with the ladies earlier had I tried some love poetry, but I didn't. So um, love poetry, I'm going to read to you a little bit. Are you ready? Okay. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometimes too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often in its gold complexion dimmed, and every fair and fair from some time declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. I think he's saying, this is Shakespeare's sonnet number 18, and I think he's saying that, that, that she's hotter than the sun. How about this um, famous love poet? Have you heard this one? Have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's no one else above you? Fill my heart with gladness. Take away all my sadness. Ease my troubles. That's what you do. That's the, the famous love poet, Rod Stewart. <laughs> Diamond Rio suggests that love feels like this. It's like just before dark, jump in the car, buy an ice cream, and see how far we can drive before it melts kind of feeling. There's a cow on the road, and you swerve to the left, and fate skips a beat, and it scares you to death, and you laugh until you cry... That's how your love makes me feel inside. I have no idea what that means. Um, I'm kind of a country guy, so I'm, I'm caught in a country track, but here we go. Late last night, I had a crazy dream. I met a man who invented a money machine. He said, I know things are tight and times are tough, but he'd give me the machine if I'd give you up. I just looked him in the eye and I said, no thanks, because honey, your love's better than money in the bank. Honey... Your love's better than money in the bang, yang, 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 yank. <clears throat> Finally, one more. That was uh, John Anderson, if anyone cares. One more. I've been really trying, baby, trying to hold back these feelings for so long. And if you feel like I feel, baby, come on, oh, come on, let's get it on. <clears throat> So these are relatively recent ideals of love, pictures, images of love that, um, you know, frankly, I just don't have much confidence in because as I look at pop culture, as I look at society today and open magazines or watch TV, I, I just, I don't find much confidence in these pictures that the world is selling us today of love. And so I guess I wish that God would have published some love poetry because then it would be easier. And he did. If you have your Bibles with you today, uh, I'm going to go to Song of Songs. It might be called Song of Solomon in your Bible, and it'll be on the side screens otherwise. If you don't know where it is, if you open the middle, you find Psalms. And then you go to the right of that, it's Proverbs. And to the right of that is Ecclesiastes. And to the right of that is Song of, Psalms, Song of Songs. And if you already knew where it is, you're probably a little bit nervous. Um, or you're just really still trying to think that I really quote Marvin Gaye in church. And I did. Uh, before I get started, I've got I to gotta cite my source. I, my brother-in-law is a guy named Matt Carter, and he preaches at a church in Muncie. And he gave a message using Song of Songs. Actually, he gave a couple, but um, I, I spent all week trying to improve his message, and I couldn't. So I'm just giving you what I, what I heard. And he took his, um, some of his stuff was from a book called Sex God by Rob Bell. And I don't know if you've read that, but if you haven't, I, I highly recommend it. It's, it's great. Any parent, I think, ought to read it before they, they talk or while they're talking to their, to their kid about sex especially. So anyway, Matt Carter, Sex God by Rob Bell. Song of Psalms, here we go. 
I'm going to start just to set the tone. One, one through five. This is Solomon's song of songs, more wonderful than any other. By the way, Solomon wrote 1,003 songs, and this is apparently his best one. So the young woman says, Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me in to his bedroom. And the, uh, the young women of Jerusalem all say, How happy we are for him. We praise his love even more than wine. To which the young woman says, How right that the young women love you. And I think that's interesting because he's basically saying, All the chicks dig this guy. This guy is the author of the poem. So anyway, that's just to set the tone and really has nothing to do with the message. And so we're going to go on to 1 verse 12. The king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrance of my perfume. My lover is like a sachet of myrrh lying between my breasts. He is like a bouquet of flowers in the garden of Engadai. So I want to focus on verse 13. My lover is like a sachet of myrrh lying between my breasts. And so this, this lady, she's saying that that's what he's like. And um, I'd say of all of the technological advancements that have taken place between the time that this was written and today, computers and cars and all that, I think the most wonderful technological advancement is in personal hygiene, okay? They didn't have tap water. They didn't bathe um, often, and they didn't really have the ability to do that. So um, they had to come up. They didn't have deodorants. So they had to come up with creative ways to um, mask bodily odor, and that's just the way it was. And so what uh, women would do at this time, they would take a, a sachet, a pouch of myrrh, a really strong incense, and they'd lie it on their chest as they slept. And as they slept and their body warmed, the, um, the, the sachet would warm, and then it would emit this powerful and strong and really good-smelling fragrance. So in this verse, she's saying, my lover, like, brings out the best in me, like the heat brings out the myrrh. Or, or she's saying, even better, I think, she's saying, you know, all my imperfections that I am so aware of and I'm always hard on myself and all the things that I don't like about myself, my lover, he masks those. He covers those up. He makes me smell better than I smell. He covers up my stinkiness. You know, I mean, that's, that's what she's saying. And I like that. Chapter 2, uh, verse 1. The young woman again says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. And the young man says, yes, compared to other women, my beloved is like a lily among thorns. Um, The Rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, those are like the most common flowers that you would find in that that area in the world. And so she's saying, I'm a lily among lilies. You know, there's nothing special about me. I'm plain. And he says, because he's smart, no, no, honey, let me tell you, compared to other women, you are a lily among thorns. Smooth. Then the young woman, woman continues. She says, well, and compared to other youths, my lover is like the finest apple tree in the orchard. I am seated, seated in his delightful shade, and his fruit is delicious to eat. I delight to sit in his shade. That's what she says. So, um, like, she, she delights. She takes great pleasure in, great joy in. There is no place in the world she'd rather be than sitting in his shade. And shade, you know, that, that's a term that means it's cool, it's refreshing, it's nice to sit there, but it also means I am protected 
protected from the sun, but also protected from everything else, you know. And he brings out the best in me. He covers up my stinkiness, but he protects me from all the ways the world tells me I am not good enough, you know. I delight to sit in his shade. That is cool. Skipping ahead to chapter 4. We're going to go to verse 15. This is the young man speaking, and he says, You are a garden fountain. A well of living water as refreshing as the streams from the Lebanon mountains. I mean, a mountain stream is cool and refreshing. And he says, when I'm with you, I am refreshed. I am made new. I feel clean and cool. And, you know, everywhere else in the world, when I, I... I come home and I am tired and the world, it just wears me out. The world's not a very refreshing place to be, but when I'm with you, you know, and then I get, when we get the kids to bed, and then when I'm with you, I am refreshed. Nice. Chapter 5, verse 10. She says, my lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. So she's saying, you know, listen, if you lined up, 10,000 men, and I had to walk through all of them and pick one, and I had to do that a hundred times. Every time out of a hundred, I would choose my man over all the others every single time. And so that's where I wish that Song of Songs went ahead and said, so here, folks, is how you become one in 10,000. Here is how you can make it so that she can delight to sit in your shade. Um, But it doesn't do that. So we have to go somewhere else. We have to go somewhere else to get this how-to on how to be dreamy, right? How to be, how to be this, this, great, this great guy or this great gal. And here's where um, I'm really conscious that we're, we're diving into the deep end. So come with me. We're going to go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians is in the New Testament. By the way, um, I said this once, but we, we actually got a, a new shipment of Bibles in. So we've got plenty of Bibles back there if you want one. Um, At the Info Hub, just stop by on your way out. We'll be happy to get it to you. So Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 21. And it says this, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Can you believe I just said the submit word? You know, I mean, we're really going to go there today. Okay. In the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, this is neat. We talked Hebrew love poetry, and now we're talking Greek. So, two languages I know nothing about. Um, in the in the Greek words, in the Greek, the word submit means to place under in an orderly fashion. It's kind of like a military term, actually. So, to place under in an orderly fashion, um, and then the, the word used for one another um, in the in verse twenty one, where it says submit to one another. That word is alelos, and I love this. Um, in Greek, alelos, um, the word for one another, alelos, in Greek means one another. 
which is nice because it means what it's supposed to mean. Um, but it does have specific connotations. Apparently, there are two or three words for one another. And one of the words is a one another that indicates some sort of order, some um, subordinate to. This one, though, alelos means equal. So submit to your equal. Submit to one another, um, which means that that would have to be a voluntary thing. There's no set out position that requires um, submission based on position. This is a voluntary deal. And then it says, why? You know, why would you submit? It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hmm. So because of Christ, I'll place the well-being of another ahead of my own. I mean, that's what Christ did. So it's not about what's in it for me or what can I get, but it's about how can I serve you, voluntarily deciding to serve others, to elevate their position above your own. Um, and, and again, that's in a voluntary fashion. And then just to clear up <clears throat> any misunderstanding that, that, that we may have from maybe all the different times. I mean, have we all heard this verse before? Wives, submit to your husbands. I mean, I've heard it. Has anyone else heard that verse? I've heard it lots and lots of places. And um, a couple times it was, it was done pretty well, but most of the time I left really not feeling very good. Because it's pretty awkward, you know? And... Um, So just to clear up any misunderstanding that we may have, verse 22 by itself says in in my Bible here, you wives will submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. But again, if we go back to the Greek, this is how the verse reads, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And so it's good to remember that when it was written, uh, there were no paragraphs, there weren't punctuation like what we have today. Uh, someone came in later and added verse numbers and those nice little headings that tell you what the section's going to be about. Someone added all that in later. And sometimes when they did that, to make it read easier as standalone, they sometimes added words that um, were maybe assumed in the original. So, but again, the original would have said, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Anybody? What, what word's missing there? Submit. This is how, it just, when I heard Matt Carter's sermon, that's how it worked. Someone actually said submit, so I'm really glad that you're with me too. Um, Submit, it's missing, it's not there. So when you don't have a verb, right, we have an object and, and everything else you need. I really don't know very much English, but the, when you don't have a verb, <clears throat> they tell me you have to go on a verb hunt. So what verb have we crossed recently? Submit. So it's called a borrowed verb, and it's borrowed from 21. And all that means is, the whole point of this little English grammar lesson is that you cannot preach 22, unless you also preach 21, right? 22 can't stand by itself. So if anyone says, wives, submit to your husbands, unless they started with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands, as to the Lord, and husbands die to your wife. I mean, unless they do that, they've really left some important stuff out. And um, I'll leave it there. So, Then it goes on further and says, Husbands, to your wives, as Christ was head of the church. And so now I want to talk about what what Christ's headship was all about. Like, how did he become the head of the church? And it's because he died for the church. He was the chief sacrificer, right? The head servant. That's where Christ's headship comes from. So when we're asked as men to be the head of the home, we're asked to be like Christ, um, you know, what that, I don't know if anyone's ever heard the power language, I'm the head of this house, you know, so when I say that, what I'm saying is, you know, I'm the, you know, the, the, the head, I'm the president of poopy diapers, 
I'm the director of Dirty Dishes, the CEO of Clean. I'm the commander, supervisor, manager, controller, ruler, captain of keeping the kids for an evening so that you can have some quiet time. I'm the lieutenant of laundry, right? I mean, if there are food for three people, if there's enough money to buy food for three people, but there are four of us, who doesn't eat? Well, it's the head, the chief servant, the chief sacrificer. So the headship comes from serving and from sacrificing. The head of the house lays down his life for his wife, just as Christ laid down his life for the church. The head of the house dies every day in everything he does by serving her and providing for her needs before his own. And the wife, the wife would voluntarily, not because he earned it, not because she wanted to get something out of it, but voluntarily would put his needs in front of hers. And so we have this mutual submission that happens between two people who are equal and who don't have to. There's no position that forces this, but it's a voluntary thing. But this is, we talked about life to the full a couple weeks ago. This is marriage to the full would be about mutual submission. Let's go on to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So in 31, it says that the two are united into one, and I think this is a good time to remind us that, you know, of all the relationships that we have in our life here on earth as humans, of all the relationships that we have, there's only one relationship that brings about an actual physical change. Marriage, two become one. All the other relationships don't do that. that um, this is a really, really important deal and not to be entered into lightly, and I think that helps illustrate it. But verse 32 is the one that I want to get to today. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So all this stuff, you know, we've just been talking about mutual submission and how marriage is supposed to work, and then he says, Paul says, this is a great mystery, and I assume he's talking about Marriage, a great mystery, because boy, is it. And he says, but no, it's a mystery that is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So I think what this, um, what this gets at for me is the fact that, you know, um, if you go to Amazon.com and do a search for the word marriage at the top, you get 1,920 items, mostly books, you know, that talk about marriage and how to how to have a great marriage and, um, you know, how to have a great marriage in 21 days and seven steps to a fulfilling marriage and, and all these things. And those are great because you need to be, you know, thinking of, I need to be thinking about how I can be a better husband and those things. And those books do a good job of that. Um, but that is all inward focused, all inward focused. And, and what Paul says is maybe it's not about being inward focused at all. Maybe the point of marriage isn't marriage at all. But it's an illustration of Christ and his church. So the purpose of marriage is to be an example um, of Christ. It's, it's the whole point of marriage is to move the kingdom forward. Now, a byproduct of that will be some internal good things, you know. But um, the point, the purpose, maybe it's not what I always thought it was. So if Paul says the goal of marriage ultimately is to move the kingdom of God forward, that they would love each other these two people would love each other with such devotion and such servant-like love that people would see that passion, love, devotion, sacrifice. They would see it and they'd say, something's weird. That can't be Steve and that can't be Sarah. That, something's different about that. They might see that 
and know that that's Jesus. So the ultimate beauty isn't that they get along, right? It's that they move the kingdom forward. And so I was thinking that, you know, in the Old Testament, there are just pages and pages and pages where God is um, talking to his people and he's using these symbols, these props to kind of teach them about who he is. You know, he, he gives them manna and he has them build a temple and they do um, sacrifices. And so they have all these things, temples and sacrifices and tests and things like that. And they're just, they're just props. They're symbols that teach us about God. So maybe that this marriage thing is like God's ultimate prop, right? It's a picture that God has created with all its beauty and mystery and frustration and wonder that it's a witness to the world in the way that two people love and sacrifice to each other as Jesus did for us, right? It's it's an example of the undying, grace-giving, forgiving love of Jesus. So this, this living, breathing symbol of the sacrificial love of God, I know it's complicated. And I guess um, I should have said this at the outset. And I know that here in the real world, when we can't just dream about what could be, when we actually have to you know, go home today and live with somebody, there are issues of, of abuse. Um, and let me just be real clear that there, is a, there are things that you cannot enable and that you need to get out of. And so I understand that. And um, I, I really don't know how to get into all that today, but know that it, that's important and that you can't just glaze over it. So that's not my intention today. But in the ideal, if we're thinking about it, maybe the intent, the ideal is that people could see the love and sacrifice and say, I see something in them that I can't explain. That must be Jesus. All right, so back to Song of Psalms. Back to love poetry, right? You show me a husband that loves in this way that dies to his wife as Christ died for the church every day and everything. You show me a couple that's having this like service contest, who can do more for the other. It's not about what's in it for me, but what what I can give to you. You show me a couple that does that. I'll show you a woman that delights to sit in the shade of her husband. He is one in 10,000. He brings out the best in me. He refreshes me and vice versa. So, um... Girlfriends in the room, do we have any? Let me ask you a few things about um, your boyfriends. This guy, who I'm sure is, um, you know, bringing you flowers every day and buying you chocolates, is he, a, is he a servant? We can't really apply Ephesians 5 to boyfriends and girlfriends, but we can ask ourselves, is this person that I'm dating, do they have a servant's heart? Are they an Ephesians 5 type of person? Does he put your well-being in front of his own because that's how he is? Boyfriends, you ask the same thing about, about your girlfriend. Or do they do this only when it's convenient for them and there's something in it for them? Are you safe? Do you, do you delight to sit in his shade? Does he protect you? How does he talk about you uh, when you're not around? When, you know, when word gets back to you, how is it that, that he's been talking about you when you're not around or in a group? How, how does that dynamic work? How does he treat you when it's not just the two of you? Does he demonstrate an Ephesians 5 type of attitude? By the way, this still applies for married folks too, right? Boyfriends, is she the kind of disciple that places the well-being of others ahead of her own, right? Would, Would she be described as someone who has a servant's heart? Would you be someone that's described as having a servant's heart, right? Because their needs come first. 
All right, and next week we're going to talk more about sex, but we got to bring it up today. As for sex, boyfriends and girlfriends, right? Boyfriend, I mean, you're putting her needs in front of your own, so protecting and preserving her purity would be like goal number one. So a question that you just got to ask, are you a protector of or a threat to her purity? Is your interest in her what you can get out of her or what you can sacrifice and give? And boyfriends and girlfriends, and people who are looking for boyfriends and girlfriends, if this person isn't an Ephesians 5 type of person, right, if they're not a servant, hold out. It'll be worth it. Hold out. Wait for it. So for those of you who are not married, a thought. God's vision for us all is to be servants. It's to be someone who has a habit of putting the needs of someone else in front of your own. So maybe God's vision for you is to focus on being the kind of person that you are looking for. And maybe if you are more that type of person, a different type of person will find you. I hope to encourage you this morning um, that it'll be worth it. Because when you get married, um, there isn't a switch that flips, right? You don't go from being this imperfect person to as soon as you say, I do, everything's fine. You know, everything's perfect. All of a sudden, I become a servant. All of a sudden, I become the kind of person that everyone wants to be with. That just doesn't happen. No marriage is like this enormous magnifying glass that a spotlight shines through onto all of your junk and your stinkiness, you know? So, married folks, are you safe with one another? Do you delight to sit uh, in your spouse's shade? And then, um, because I'm a man, I'll probably talk more to the men in the room today, but men, you might be wondering... Maybe sometimes you ask the question, why doesn't she respect me more? You know? But may, maybe the better question is, why is it so hard for me to lay down my life for her every day? You might be asking, why doesn't she respect me like a man? But maybe the real question is, are you behaving like a man? <clears throat> All right, so we've been dreaming for a while. Now we're back to the real world. So you're saying, maybe, maybe, maybe you're sitting in your seat saying, but this isn't a dream. It isn't a fairy tale. You know, you don't have to, you don't know who I'm married to. Time to stop dreaming, Steve, because when I leave here, I have to go home and live with this person. And I got to tell you, she's just not worth it, right? She's not a good person at all. Or he comes home and, and he gets the TV remote and all he does is walk right by me and turn on the game and it's like glued to his hand and I can't get him to talk to me and I do everything with the kids or, or, or she won't stop nagging me and he cheated and she cheated that person is just not worth laying my life down for them. It's, it's not worth submitting myself to a person like that. What a waste of energy. What a messed up loser, I think, is what some of us would say. Romans 5.8 said, But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So I know that you have history with your um, with your mate. You know, I know that you have history and that not all that history is good. But if you're saying Ephesians 5, Song of Psalms, Song of Songs, they're great. They're really nice. But my man is such a messed up loser. Well, thank God Jesus didn't say that about us. Thank God he didn't say that about me. So let me be clear. Again, there are abuse issues. There are unfaithfulness situations. And you have to deal with those things in a different way. And I understand that. But but what if, 
What if we believed that if the spirit of Jesus and therefore the spirit of everyone that claimed to follow him is to sacrifice for people who aren't worth it, right? If we believe that, it changes everything. What if you decided that you were gonna lay down your life for her even though she wasn't worth it? What if, what if you were decided that you were gonna submit to him as if he were everything you wished he could be? When you sacrificially die for someone in that way, I mean, as many of us have experienced when we've accepted the gift of Christ, when you sacrificially die for someone that way, it has a life, just a transformational, life-changing power, right? The world says that you should treat people based on what they're worth. And Jesus says, no, you should treat people as if they're worth dying for. All right, so we've been in the deep end of the pool. Let me close. This week, this series, this month, starting today, let's do what we can to make this marriage, make this this living, breathing symbol of the sacrificial love that God has for every one of us the best prop that God ever had, because I think we are. I think marriage is that prop. If you're not married, in all of our relationships, ask yourself, am I putting the well-being of others in front of my own? It's not about what I can get, but what I can give. Because that's the kind of love that this world today, in 2008, that's the kind of world, love this world rarely sees. And that's the way of Jesus. Pray? Let, let's. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the start of this new week. We pray specifically for the marriages in this church and the relationships in this church. Throughout this series, we're going to we're going to need your help to show us how to be servants, how to put others' needs ahead of our own, and how to submit to one another uh, out of reverence for you. And we thank you so much for the gift that you gave us to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were totally unworthy, and we remain unworthy. But because of you, we can be refreshed in our relationships and absolutely delight to sit with you. Amen.